Here we are. We're on. We've got Casey with us today. And Casey, we're going to talk about an appellate court decision that makes me want or wish that I could go back and get a PhD in psychology. And I say that because I know that you studied psychology in college. And there is a certain type of person out there who has some type of disorder. And I wish that I knew what was causing it. Uh, I'm talking about people that are in family court cases. Uh, you know, there's something that causes them to act a certain way that has to be tied to a disorder. And I wish I knew the background for it. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about vexatious litigants. And uh, our viewers should know that the reason why Casey is joining me today is I think that she is the attorney in our office who unfortunately or fortunately has dealt with more vexatious litigants than anybody else in here. I mean, she's weathered the storm, and I think she her personal experience would be uh, very useful in understanding what a vexatious, vexatious litigant is and how these cases play out and how these people behave. So, Casey, what's the name of the case we're talking about today? Okay, so today we're talking about the Deal case, Patricia Deal and Thomas Deal. Mm -hmm. It's a recent appellate decision, and I just want to backtrack and say it's family court, and we we have a reputation among amongst all lawyers as like, oh, gosh, family law. Oh, my goodness, how do you deal with that? So with that said, I'm surprised that in family law, more family law practitioners don't use the vexatious litigant statute, which is available to us. It's in the CCP. I'm surprised we don't see it more. But it's it, it's powerful. It has some vulnerabilities. But I look forward to kind of flushing that all out today. And this case lays it all out. And in fact, the fact pattern of this case and the type of people that we're seeing reminds me a lot of some of the cases that we've encountered over the years the personality types, and to borrow from your terminology, Don, you call it dating by litigation, when someone just can't let go, and it reflects in the in the way they litigate their divorce case. So I look forward to getting through this case today. Yeah, and I want to make one distinction. Uh, we have other people that over-litigate cases. There are people that take unreasonable positions, but this is a whole different level, right? This is somebody that's doing something different. So what is a vexatious litigant? So let's let's talk in general so just kind of looking at looking at the wording in general when you talk about someone who is vexatious we're talking about someone who is annoying or toxic something like that in general personality type but when we take it to the level of the law what is a vexatious litigant we're really talking about someone who's filing litigation that is unlikely to win it it doesn't have any merit and they're doing it really just to annoy or harass or delay I thought, you know, it's kind of hard to prove that, but there there is a statute for that. So in family law, there are a lot of things that you can ask for. We don't always know if we're, if we're going to win, you know, but we have our foot in the door. We have merit to, you know, ask for a modification of child support or child custody. But we're talking about, like you said, a, a, another level, a deeper level. And there is protection out there for someone who is, for example, obsessed with the litigation is is not interested really in the outcome, but is really only interested in making you waste time and money on attorney fees, or really trying to just exploit maybe the only access they have to their former partner is is by litigating and, and using the legal system to annoy them. So we're going to go through kind of what is available for, for individuals who are going through that. Okay. So why don't you set up the case for us? So in general, um, so so we have husband and wife. They were, um, they had twins. 
Fast forward, they're getting a divorce. After the divorce judgment is entered, husband is deemed a vexatious litigant. So I don't know if we want to talk about procedurally what that means. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so generally what that means is husband has behaved badly in litigation. Someone has decided to file a motion and make it harder for him to come and annoy and harass wife with He's litigation. representing himself. Yes, very important. So so what's, what's a vexatious litigant? You are... Um, you're put on a blacklist. Let's put it that way. You're put on this blacklist. If you represent yourself and you file litigation, you're going to have to get first, you're going to have to get permission from the presiding judge of the court in here. Um, it's in California. You're going to have to get permission from that particular um, county. And the court's going to review it and, and, and decide yes or no whether you can move forward. So it's like that extra hurdle. If, what is the court looking for in giving the green light? Say, so, yeah, you can move forward with it. I mean, what the court's looking for on paper is whether it's there's merit. My my personal experience in this area is we're just gonna we're just gonna make it a little bit harder for you to get to the next level. I haven't seen a lot of cases actually blocked, but again, it's it's an extra check on the vexatious litigant to go through this. And if the vexatious litigant ignores this pre-filing order then uh, their their entire filing will get rejected. So it, that's essentially what it is. It's, it's a, an extra hurdle for them. And if they make it to the next level, then there is something called a bond that can be put, that you can request. And that if, essentially is you're very unlikely to win this request. Therefore, I want you to post a bond for $10,000, which is what I estimate my attorney fees are going to be. And if you don't post the bond, you don't get to move forward with your litigation. So it's kind of a layer of, of hurdles and checks to, to try to slow the vexatious litigant down. Okay. All right. So what else do we need to know about this case? Okay. So, so in general, this is um, someone who continued to continue to, to file um, uh, various claims that were deemed um, to have no merit. What he was trying to do, he wasn't happy with the ruling of his divorce case. So what he tried to do was over and over and over again, he tried to overturn prior rulings. He dressed them up differently. He put different makeup and hair and lipstick on them. But at the end of the day, I think it's really interesting if you read quotes from the actual language, he the spirit of everything that he was doing was just to overturn prior rulings. There was nothing new. And, and, and there are some really great quotes to, to pull out from this decision. Yeah, I can't wait to get into those. So he was also being uh, offensive with regard to the judge calling people names and things like that, I think, as well. And we'll talk a little bit about how the appellate court dealt with that. Right, right. I think that there were um, – there were uh, – there was like there were like there were like these implicit threats to come after people for their um, licenses, their professional licenses, uh, to oppose um, the judges. And some of the experiences that I've had with vexatious litigants, anyone who touched the case was going to get a restraining order against them, a lawsuit against them, um, a state bar complaint against them. Uh, every single judge that touched the case received uh, a judicial complaint. So that is kind of the M.O. of these individuals is to um, viciously attack anyone who, okay. who touches okay. so, the case. So I have been, and I know that you have too, uh, been reported to the FBI, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, the state bar, uh, as well as the judges in some of our cases and stuff. You know, I mean, these people go out all out 
to really blast you, you know, with regard to any legal means that they could think of, right? Exactly. That's that's what that's what it is. And and again, I'm glad. I'm I'm surprised that this hasn't uh, come down earlier in family court, but I'm glad that we have an appellate decision because I think that there are some nuggets in here as far as um, the quotes and really pinpointing, um, you know, what 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 we will continue to see in the future. And and just to kind of close up one one point. If, if this vexatious litigant is represented by counsel, that the person doesn't have to go through the same hurdles. They still have that kind of scarlet letter of being a vexatious litigant, but they don't have to go through the same hurdles because now they have some skin in the game. Now they're paying counsel to represent them in court. And that's an important thing. These people could always choose to get a lawyer. They can always choose to get a lawyer. And now, I suppose from the perspective of the the consumer from the the public, the lawyer is bound by by you know State Bar of California and the ethics. So we're we're relying on that lawyer, uh, you know, complying with with their ethical obligations and not filing uh, meritless claims. You know, you know, I was thinking I've never represented a person who was previously determined to be a vexatious litigant. But it kind of reminds me of the public defender's office almost. I mean, you've got somebody that has got some very zany ideas that has tried to uh, appeal a, a decision that's not even appealable, relitigate issues that have been litigated ad nauseum, and you're bringing yourself into court to try to represent this person and do it in a way that you save face, but you know, still advocating. That's a tough job. You know, and I have to say that in the attorneys that we've seen doing that to some of our vexatious litigants, I admire them for that because they did maintain their ethics, you know, while they were doing it. Right. Yeah, I thought about kind of going back in time and the experiences I've had where attorneys actually tried to defend against uh, uh, the, you know, our request to deem someone a vexatious litigant. And I think it's a hard job to do. And I don't know a lot of attorneys that would you know, allow the vexatious litigant to walk in the door and sign them up as a new client. I think there are a lot of red flags there, but um, it's a difficult thing to do. And particularly in family court, I mean, the code says something like, you know, if they file three claims that are without merit, I think that's a really hard thing to prove in family court. How, How are you to say that filing for a modification of child custody because you want to spend more time with your son or daughter is without merit. It's very difficult to say. It's not black and white. A lot of the issues in family law are not black and white. So I would say if you feel like you're dealing with this type of person, you're not you're not going to go into court with three instances, you're going to go into court with 15 instances that are a little bit more black and white that show that someone really is taking advantage of, of the system as opposed to just, hey, something new happened, and I'd like to modify my my order. Yeah, you know, you talk about you know, defending somebody, you know, in these cases. And I think that the problem, if you were to bring on a client like this, and I don't think I ever will, to be honest with you. I just, I do a lot of things for a lot of people, but who's going to be driving the bus when you go into court? Is your client going to listen to you? You know, in these cases, it's very doubtful. You know, how much client, we call it client control, but how much effectiveness are you going to have with somebody that wants to relitigate issues and you know they think they understand the law and things of that nature right so let's get to the quotes i I love the quotes of this trial judge um kind of in the beginning in the facts section the judge talks about it is obvious from 
you know, the vexatious litigants' extensive and voluminous pleadings and submissions to the court that he's dissatisfied with judicial rulings. He's 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 basically he thinks that there's a conspiracy against him. Um, the court essentially outlines that he's just trying to overturn prior rulings. It's unfortunate that instead of using his skills in a productive manner, he has dedicated himself to the, now this is a new word, Sisyphean task. And I looked that up. It's a task that's never to be completed. So <laughs> Sisyphean task of endlessly pursuing the impossible. The vexatious litigant, Thomas, in this case, his emotions have blinded him to the reality that our legal system has limits. Right or wrong, all issues in, the, in this divorce have been decided. The war is over. <laughs> Keep going. So, and I like this because I, I feel like the law kind of strips you of, you know, any creativity and artistry. And, and it's kind of fun to read a case that you know, that has a little yeah. bit of Yeah, and usually it's it. the appellate court that has the liberty <laughs> of doing this, but this trial judge was pretty articulate. What's the next sentence? Thomas stands alone on the silent battleground rattling his saber. <laughs> <laughs> All other adversaries and observers have gone home. Whatever battles were to be fought have been fought. The little children who were the subject of custody orders are now grown adults. There's no property or debts to divide, no more support to be ordered, the time for appealing to a higher court has expired. I mean, doesn't that, that is just fantastic. That's something you want to quote, right, in our brief? I Exactly, I think so. I, I think that that is quotable, and I feel, I, I think it sends a message not only to this individual, but to a lot of others. And, I, you know, we all have those cases where, you know, the children, I mean, I, I just got a call regarding a, an issue and, you know, the children are now in their 40s. So we're still dealing with some financial issues that are, uh, you know, still pending. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of great quotable language for people. Yeah. And so going into the appellate court's review of this, because we've talked a lot about what the trial court, it begins this discussion uh, to talk about what it, a, a, a vexatious litigant is and Basically, the court says, as relevant here, a vexatious litigant is one who, while self-represented, repeatedly relitigates or attempts to relitigate, I'm sorry, I'm fumbling here, matters already finally determined against them or repeatedly files unmeritorious motions, pleadings, or other papers, conducts, conducts unnecessary discovery or engages in other tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. So that's... That's a really good description of what we've seen, right? It's not again. It's not something that's over litigating a case, uh, which we don't uh, suggest people do. It's not somebody that's taking unreasonable positions, which again, you know, that's not our way of operating. It's somebody that's in a whole different class, you know. And it's going back to the psychology thing that I was talking about. Um, you know, it. it I, I talked a little bit earlier about the court's comments about making uh, statements. You know, and I don't know if you found that in here, if you read it, but, uh, you know, this court uh, said that it previously warned Thomas that further abuse of our process would resort in an order for sanctions against him. So when I got to that line, I was thinking, how are they going to sanction him? I don't know. It sounds like he's claiming that he's impoverished, right? Which is which is really the worst situation you can have a vexatious litigant with no money because what it's not like you can it's not like you can punish them with sanctions 
and they don't have an attorney. They have no skin in the game. They're not paying fees. So, you know, and, and like I said, in my experience, it everyone is entitled to access to justice. So the vexatious litigant still has constitutional rights, still has the ability to file. And in fact, I've seen that once they get through that step through the presiding judge, which is a form, piece of paper, a little explanation as to why they should be allowed to the next level, they're, it's regularly granted. Um, so it's, it's just difficult. It's difficult because there's, not, there's nothing to really there, there's not a lot of relief for the person on the on the receiving side of that, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. You know, it's the appellate court said Thomas's opening brief fails to present any intelligible argument challenging the appealed order. So this decision was really mostly about his multiple appeals as well, because this court had seen this guy before. In fact, they referred to another published decision, which I have not read yet. But this wasn't his first time around with this court of appeal either. And uh, it said, rather than articulating a persuasive basis for reversing the order, Thomas's level of ad hominem attacks on Patricia and baseless, uh, baselessly accusing the numerous bench officers who have presided over the litigation of corruption and criminal behavior, disparaging the trial judge is a tactic that is not taken lightly by a reviewing court. Actually, it was, it was actually uh, articu- uh, quoting another case in that last part of it, but you know, disparaging the trial judge, you know, is not a tactic that is taken lightly by the reviewing court. Appellate court is not a forum for ranting about conspiracy theories. Wow. You know, that's, I think this is the part of the decision that caught me just like it did with you when you said that this is something that's good to be published. But let me ask you this. After reviewing this, and it reminds us what a vexatious litigant is, why do you think that this one was published? I mean, it could have just been a decision of the appellate court and not published, but for some reason, they they published it, and we we tend to think that you know courts are going to uh, publish things when there's new law, right? Something to be gained by the decision, so that it affects trial courts and things. Why do you think that this one was was published? Well, I'm I'm you know I'm reading tea leaves, but I have two ideas. One is it's about time because. Uh, this is frequent, it's a frequent occurrence in family law where we have individuals that are abusing the system. And there are a lot of self-represented litigants in family law, more so than I think other areas of law, where you can just go to a self-help center and file a whole packet. And, you know, it's almost like easier access to to file the meritless um, litigation. So I think it's about time and we need it in family law. Second, I, I, do, I do see, I think it's interesting that the, in the discussion, the appellate court points out and make, makes the specific point that someone can be deemed a, a vexatious litigant even if they don't initiate the litigation in the trial court. So uh, to your point, this individual was harassing the, the, the court at the appellate level with repeated, repeated appeals. And it says a self-represented defendant may be designated a vexatious litigant even if he did not initiate the litigation in the trial court. I suspect that this individual was um, a repeat offender at the appellate level, and maybe this court, you know, needed to needed to address that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, there may be other appellate court decisions in family court dealing with vexatious litigants. I can't say that I'm an expert on that. But I think your point is well taken that, if anything else, it's a statement to the trial courts that, 
you know, we will uphold these these decisions that you make, you know, and it's important to uphold the integrity of the court. I thought maybe also they they published this because they sanctioned him at the end. And I was thinking, how are they going to sanction him? And they said that the, the, the sanction was they dismissed it, which doesn't seem like much of a sanction. I, I, is that, you know, of course, the other side didn't appear, so there were no attorney's fees to pay, but their sanction was in the form of a dismissal. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I'll share, I'll share a little anecdote in a, in a case that I had where the vexatious litigant fought everything everything and 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 if you've been part of a family law case you're familiar with co-parenting apps like uh, talkingparents.com our family wizard this vexatious litigant refused the court's order to use our family wizard you know why because he wanted to call my client on the phone (laughs) he wanted to see her at the exchanges at the police station and and be able to harass her and he didn't want his bad behavior to be memorialized in the app so he refused, and he filed an appeal, and the appeal said that our family wizard violates my constitutional rights. <laughs> and the appellate court didn't think much of that. And when we went back to the judge on a related issue, but this issue came up, guess what? That because as a lawyer, I'm like, what do I? What can I really do about this? What do you do? I do I file a motion for contempt because he won't go on OFW? Maybe we're not going to waste time on that. We're going to focus on what you know what's really going on in the case. And I was surprised at this particular judicial officer. You know what she said? Until you log in, until you register for our family wizard, your visitation is suspended, sir. Ooh, wow. And he said— That's the ultimate sanction. That's the ultimate sanction. Yeah. I didn't have—I I didn't even have the thought to request such a harsh sanction because, you know, we try to keep things separate. You know, custody is one thing. The finances are another thing. The punishment— doesn't seem so direct, but you know what the, this judicial officer said: your visitation is suspended uh, until you register and follow, you know follow my order. Register on ourfamilywizard.com. Did it work? It worked. Wow! So wow! We, after after an appeal and a year's time, it it, it worked because the visitation was not going to go forward. So good. Well, let's let's conclude by going back to my original question and that is is you know or statement that i wish i had a phd in psychology so i could understand these people my initial thought before i really had some experience with these people is that there are people that think the it's easy to be an attorney that you know uh, the the legal system is something where you just have to be uh, articulate and you've got to be creative, and you don't really have to know the law. You just go in there and you argue and you do your stuff. That's what I thought it was, you know, because you see people representing themselves all the time. As you go walk through the L.A. Law Library, and there's people that are not attorneys that are poring over law books, and I think, how do you understand what you're reading? Because I needed three years of law school right. to understand that. Uh, but I think I think there's a, a psychology here too, you know, that's with that because it's not just. I'm smart enough to represent myself on appeal, uh, but it's the harassment, right? It's the harassment. It's it's a message really ultimately to the other side that I am not going to give up. You know, I'm going to date by date you by litigation. <laughs> right. I'm married to my divorce, even though right. my divorce is long gone. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a weird thing, you know, and I, I wonder just when it ends in their head, you know? I mean, if we don't know, but it's... It's deeply rooted, whatever the problem is. Well, I'll, I'll quote you again, Don, and we can conclude with this. I remember you said to a client in a civil – no, I believe it was it was 
DVRO hearing, and they dated a little while, this couple, and the client was just so upset. And you, you looked at him and you said, you know, you know that song, it's just somebody that you used to know? <laughs> just, just, let's just put it that way. Just continue on your life. Yeah. You know, you dated, it didn't work out. Just somebody that you used to know, and now you can let it go and move on. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you, Casey. This was really great. I was wondering how we were going to get through this appellate court decision because it wasn't really fact-based as far as stuff, but I think it was a very good discussion. And for those of you who always wondered what a vexatious litigant is, now you know. Thanks to Casey. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, see you next time.